Today's episode of Candid Conversations is not suitable for young ones. Parents, please listen to this podcast without your children present. You may choose to share portions of this podcast with them later, but please listen to it first. She began to tell me the stories of these young girls, horrific stories that I won't go into right now, but abortions and disease. And I said, you know, with my upbringing, I knew that this was wrong. Little girls Mm. should not be in those positions. So I said, you've convinced me. How do I teach these girls not to have sex? That was my first reaction. They should not be sexually active. There were little girls, so obviously they were being abused. Mm. And this director of sex education at Planned Parenthood patted me on the knee and she said, no, dear, we're not going to teach them not to be sexually active. We're going to teach them how to do it safer. You see, we meet them where they're at, and we just teach them how to do it safer. Hello, and welcome to Candid, where we never settle for less than the truth. I'm your host, Jonathan Youssef. Each week, we'll tackle tough issues, answer your hard questions, and take a candid look at the Christian faith. I encourage everyone to listen to these next two episodes, but especially parents. You need to be aware of what your local school is teaching your kids as it relates to sex education. My guest, Monica Klein, will shed a light on her experience of teaching sex education to kids and the things she was trained by Planned Parenthood and other groups to say to these vulnerable little ones. Monica was recording a testimony video for Leading the Way, and my team passed her story and information along to me. We knew straight away Monica was a voice we needed to hear from on Candid. She has a wealth of experience and wisdom to share with us. We spoke for an hour and a half, and it still felt too short. We've broken Monica's interview into two episodes. Make sure you stay connected with us so that you can hear both parts. For over a decade, Monica Klein worked in HIV prevention education, comprehensive sex education as a Title X family planning training manager, and volunteer educator for Planned Parenthood. During this time, she came to learn that serving the marginalized meant meeting them where they are and then leaving them there. A combination of that philosophy, her experience in the community, and her own personal testimony prompted her to question comprehensive sex education and Planned Parenthood crisis pregnancy counseling. Her questions and concerns were rejected or ignored by her superiors, and she was told she was unwelcome if she was not in agreement with their approach. Today, Monica boldly exposes the truth behind comprehensive sex education and the harm it causes our children, families, and communities. Her goal is to encourage parents to reclaim parenthood and become their children's greatest advocates and educators. Now, on to the first part of my conversation with Monica. Monica Klein, it is a pleasure to have you on Candid Conversations. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me to your podcast. Monica, I think uh, it would be really helpful for those who maybe aren't totally familiar with who you are. If you just tell us a little bit about your story, your your upbringing, and uh, those sort of big milestones uh, in your life to where you are today. I'm originally from Brownsville, Texas, uh, the southern tip of Texas, and uh, it's a predominantly Mexican-American town. 
And uh, I lived out there in the country with my parents and my big brother. And, um, and, and, you know, we just had a, a wonderful little family. It just had the usual life of, um, times were tough sometimes and times were really good. But, you know, one thing that, uh, looking back, realizing, especially with the ministry that I have today is that my parents demonstrated to me how important family is that commitment Mm -hmm. to your husband and your wife and that commitment to your children. I can say that my parents had a very strong value that we did everything together. I always noticed that my mom and dad were each other's best friends and they did not have outings away from each other, but their outings were always with each other and it always included us. And so that was a great foundation for me. Um, my parents did give me a Bible and let me know that God existed and that I could go through the Bible if I wanted to. They pointed out the Ten Commandments and let me know that there were good rules to live by. Um, but that was the extent of my education about Jesus Christ. So I didn't grow up understanding who Jesus really is. And if anything, um, you know, many people in Brownsville, or at least when I was growing up, were, I, you know, were Catholic. And so I saw a lot of imagery. Um, I saw a lot of altars. I saw Jesus on a cross crucified, but I never understood who he was. And if anything, as a little girl, I thought that's very sad to see this man on a cross. Yeah. I say that because I, you know, it's part of my story of not understanding who Jesus really is. So I grow up and uh, I attend a a small farm school uh, in Los Fresnos. It's a tiny little town. And I'm noticing in my senior year that everyone's applying to college. And I, you know, we came from poverty. My parents uh, dropped out of school in the eighth grade. So I, I, you know, we didn't talk about going to college, but I quickly realized that my peers were preparing for that. So I decided to apply. I only applied to one school because it was the only school I knew of. And that was the University of Texas at Austin. Um, I was accepted. My parents um, didn't even know I applied. <laughs> they, wow. uh, But they were happy for me. And off I went to UT. Um, and I think many people might know And if you don't know, the University of Texas at Austin is known to be a very liberal school. Mm. So not having a very strong Christian background, I was molded by the world and molded by the values that I learned at the University of Texas. Mm. And um, as I was graduating from UT, um, I was asked to volunteer and I chose an organization to volunteer at. And at the time it was in the nineties and HIV was still an epidemic. Mm. And I wanted to do my part as a young person. I wanted to do something impactful. I wanted to reach marginalized populations and do something significant. And so I decided to volunteer at a gay organization to help with HIV prevention education. Um, I had had a relative that had passed away from HIV in the 80s, and I wanted to know more about this relative because I knew he identified with same-sex attraction, but I never really knew him. And as I volunteered uh, for this organization, they quickly hired me, and I became an HIV prevention educator, and they began to teach me about the gay culture. They began to introduce me to sex education And within a month, they um, asked me to go across the street to Planned Parenthood to be educated by them. 
And uh, so the director of sex education of Planned Parenthood in Austin mentored me on how to reach the young population, school-aged children, with the Mm. message of sex education, which is what we call today comprehensive sex education. Right. And the first thing she told me were all the really terrible stories of these young girls coming into the clinic, girls as young as 10. Uh, This is a neighborhood that was considered at high risk for pregnancy and sexually transmitted diseases and HIV. Um, And we were, you know, right in the middle of this neighborhood. And so she began to tell me the stories of these young girls, horrific stories that I won't go into right now. Um, But abortions and disease And I said, you know, with my upbringing, I knew that this was wrong. Little girls Mm -hmm. should not be in those positions. So I said, you've convinced me. How do I teach these girls not to have sex? That was my first reaction. They should not be sexually active. They were little girls. So obviously they were being abused. Mm -hmm. And this director of sex education at Planned Parenthood patted me on the knee and she said, no, dear, we're not going to teach them not to be sexually active. We're going to teach them how to do it safer. You see, we meet them where they're at and we just teach them how to do it safer. And I didn't like her response, but I trusted her and I trusted her like many people in these communities trust Planned Parenthood and these other types of organizations. These are professional people. These people are receiving government funding, taxpayer money. Right. If they have government funding, if the government approves what they're doing, then it must be right. And so that's the way I rationalized it, not having a Christian background. That's how I came to accept that message. One of the first things that she taught me is she said, Monica, when you go into a classroom full of boys and girls, I want you to imagine that they've done anything and everything when it comes to sex. And if they haven't, they will. And it's your job to teach them how to reduce their risk by using condoms. And then she just went into detail into many more things that needed to be taught to these children. Mm. And all of this was being done without parental knowledge or parental consent. And it continues today. Mm. I ended up being in this field of work for over 10 years. I was with the gay organization for about five years. Then I moved on to another organization serving people who lived with HIV and uh, became a manager of a prevention program. Um, I actually went to the CDC and met with the CDC and chose evidence-based interventions for my community. And towards the end of my career, I became the Title X training manager for Texas and New Mexico. And Title X is family planning, taxpayer money, uh, and that is to go towards contraceptives. And, uh, and that is probably the majority of the money that Planned Parenthood has. And uh, so in all those years, I continued to work very closely with Planned Parenthood, never employed by them, but mentored by them. And at some point, I was actually training them as myself as their training manager. And in all those years, there's one thing that they always said to me. They always said in conferences and workshops, parents are a barrier to service. Mm. As soon as a parent finds out that their child is coming into our clinic, we will never see that child again. Parents are a barrier. And this really supported their practice of asking young girls to come in and give different names so they could remain anonymous. Uh, They would recommend that they give the phone number of a friend that they could trust instead of 
their home number. Cause of course, back then we didn't really have mo- mobile phones. Right. Right. Um, and all of that was to remind the young girls to come in for their appointments or to call them and tell them about their uh, test results for, for disease or to remind them to come in and get more contraception and all of this again, done without parental knowledge. Planned Parenthood has done a very good job of, um, I hate to wear, use the word good, um, but they've been able to not only have a grassroots movement, but they've been able, along with organizations similar to them, like SECUS and many other organizations, that they're impacting the grassroots level, the culture, but they're also working very hard to impact federal law and state law because they know that parents are their number one obstacle to getting to the children. And they're working very hard to ensure that if they can eliminate the parent from the picture, then they will be set to be able to continue to impact the young culture, our youth. Mm -hmm. And we see that all the time. Um, The CDC calls it privacy and confidentiality for adolescents. There's so many different programs that revolve around believing that a parent is a barrier, that a parent is ignorant, the parent is the problem. We're seeing it in transgender bills, that parents are a barrier to the health care of their children. And so this is why, Jonathan, after I realized what this organization was doing, when I began to realize that these communities were slowly dying because of this education, because we were basically meeting them where they're at and leaving them there in their high Mm. risk behaviors. When I realized all of that, I I just was no longer able to work there. But the truth is, is that I could not have realized it without God. Mm. And in those 10 years, I had my own unplanned pregnancy and I scheduled my own abortion and I didn't give it a second thought because of the culture that I lived in. It is what you do. It's very much like branding. It's like an equation. When this, then this, when unplanned pregnancy, then abortion. I mean, that's just the order of things. You don't think about it. And that's Mm. what's so clever about Planned Parenthood's approach is that they give you these talking points and they say them over and over again, that the culture begins to say when unplanned pregnancy, then abortion. It's just a natural thought. But I actually had a good friend who I called to tell her I had scheduled an abortion and she had had an abortion in college and she began to humanize my child. Mm. And she did it by celebrating my child and she said, I'm so excited. I can't wait until I meet your baby. I mean, oh my goodness, if it's a little boy, you know, I wonder what kind of hair he'll have. And I wonder what color eyes he'll have. And she just started imagining and what the little boy would look like. And, and I would tell her, I said, I'm having an abortion. You know, you don't need to imagine this. She said, what if it's a little girl and she has your personality and your big eyes, a little Moniquita. And she just kind of kept going on and on. And she continued to imagine my child and celebrate my child's life. She never told me to cancel the abortion. She just continued to celebrate and imagine my child's life. And as she kept speaking, because she's one of those friends that you can't interrupt, she just keeps talking, Uh, thank God. And I started thinking to myself, why am I having this abortion? 
Well, and I was living a very liberal life. I was living with my boyfriend, my parents. That was not something my parents raised me to do. And so they had disowned me. They were very angry with me. And I thought, if I tell them that I'm pregnant, they're going to be even more angry with me. Yeah. And then it occurred to me, am I really going to kill my child because my parents are going to be angry with me? And I thought, wow, I mean, this isn't the last time my parents are going to be mad at me. That's really not a good reason to end my child's life. And I realized, but I never thought of my pregnancy as being a child until my friend humanized my baby. And I interrupted my friend. I said, you know, you're right. I'm going to have this baby. And she said, well, of course you are. And I said, well, I need to get off the phone because I need to cancel this appointment. And so I canceled the appointment and I, I decided not to tell my parents for a while, at least through the first trimester. And the truth is, is that everything that people say will happen with an unplanned pregnancy in many ways happened. I had many family members who were very ashamed of me. Um, I had some family members say that I should have aborted. I had other family members talking about me and, and, in very inappropriate ways, saying very ugly things about me. But I was very proud of my son. Through my pregnancy, I thought, you know, his life is more important than any shame that anyone wants to place on me. And I had my son. And by the time he turned a year old, I knew there was an emptiness in my life. And I was suffering from depression um, I was still living with my boyfriend and he um, was very, you know, much in the world and a bartender and things were not going well. And I started trying to treat my depression with alternative things, spiritual things, uh, Reiki healing, all kinds of things. This was the world that I lived in. And every time I tried to do something to alleviate my depression, something that was like an alternative new age type of thing, I always had this still voice letting me know to walk away. Yeah. And can I stop you here for a second? Yeah. I'm like transfixed by your story, but um, I, just a couple of questions that, that have come to my mind before we get to the uh, transition point in your life, when you begin to have an understanding of who Christ is, it sounds like. Yeah. Um, my first question is, as you were being trained and you, you were sort of growing in stature with, uh, with organizations like Planned Parenthood and, and some of the other ones you were working with, did you ever have a check in your spirit during those times as you're being trained, learning the sex education practices? Was there anything in you that just said, this doesn't sound right? I think that first moment when she told me about these very little girls that was my first check and I unfortunately ignored that, rationalized it because they're professionals. From there going forward, in all honesty, I did a lot of work with mostly adults, um, IV drug users, prostitutes. Um, I was in a very high risk area and I literally walked the streets of those areas, uh, dressed in just normal clothing, interacting with people who were living very high risk lifestyles, get needle exchanges, all kinds of things. Right. I think it's when I finally was with the children and actually taught children that I had a check in my spirit. And one of those times Planned Parenthood called me, I was still doing HIV prevention 
And they said, you know, we've been asked to go to this alternative school, but we don't have time. Can you go and teach comprehensive sex education for us? I said, sure, of course. And the alternative school is a school for high-risk children. They've been kicked out of every other school, and this is kind of like the last chance for them. So these are very high-risk kids, um, not well-behaved, of course. And they were about 13 years old and boys and girls. So I walk into the classroom and I begin my presentation. And the presentations are very graphic because we're talking about how diseases are spread, which means and how to prevent or how to reduce the risk. So that means I'm going to talk about every sexual activity. I'm going to talk about every bodily fluid and every possible way that those fluids could come in contact with the other person. So we're talking about pretty graphic information. And I would normally write on the whiteboard behind me, the different forms of sex and the different forms of bodily fluids that would spread disease and I'd start the conversation. So I started the conversation and a young girl in the back of the room raised her hand and she said, and, and I'll clean up her language very much so sure. for you. And she was not even being disrespectful. It was a very sure, honest sure. question. Sure. And, um, but she said, you know, I'm, when I'm involved in this activity, I gag. Can you teach me how to do it better? And that was a check in my spirit. Wow. And I thought, this is, this is shocking. This is horrific. This little girl just asked me how to improve an activity that she doesn't like. And so I, I restated the question to her. I said, I want to make sure I understand you correctly. When you're involved in this activity, you have this reaction. And what you're telling me is that you don't like that reaction. I needed to let her know. Hear her say it. Yes. And she said, that's right. I don't like it. But if you teach me how to do it better, maybe I will. Hmm. So there I I gave her the ability to acknowledge that she didn't like this activity. So then I said, okay, well, have you ever considered just not doing the activity you don't like? And that little girl and the rest of the kids in the room turned in their seats, you know, straightened up in their seats and looked at me and they didn't look judged. They didn't look like they were ashamed because that's what Planned Parenthood taught me. If you ever tell them, to not have sex, you're judging them right. and you're going to lose them. But these kids didn't, they looked innocent. Mm. And I said, guys, do you realize you don't have to be sexually active at all? And I pointed at the board behind me and I said, these sexual activities here, you don't have to do those. And if you don't do those, then this list of bodily fluids, you will never become in contact with those bodily fluids, and you don't have to worry about pregnancy or disease. And they were quiet. And the same little girl raised her hand again. And she said, ma'am, no one has ever told us that. And that was so profound. Mm. Now, Planned Parenthood always says they believe in the sexual rights of children. And what they mean by that is they believe that children have a right to sexual pleasure. And when we talk about human rights, there's always an oppressor. So when comprehensive sex education advocates are saying that children have sexual rights, they're basically saying that there's an oppressor and that oppressor is usually parents. Parents are the ones protecting their children from being sexually active at school age. Here we, I was with these kids and I was giving them permission not only permission, but for the first time they ever heard that they could abstain from sex. Mm. 
that they didn't have to be sexually active. And Planned Parenthood always said that if you teach them abstinence, they're going to feel ashamed and judged. These little kids, 13 years old, as soon as they heard the message come from me that they could abstain, they started talking about ways they could abstain. And they said, you know what? The community center, because they lived in government housing, like the community center has free movies and free snacks. We could just go watch movies and eat snacks. Another little boy said, we can go to the park and we can play basketball. We can create some teams and we can play basketball together. And the same girl who raised her hand and asked that question so that she had a lot of attitude. And she said, you know, I am better at basketball than you are and I will beat you. And he started laughing. He said, that's okay. I know you're better at basketball, but I still want to play. And they just started, they were coming up with these amazing ideas of ways. I mean, innocent child activities and, uh, and I just let them talk about it because they were coming up with their own ideas. I think what's so important, what I've learned is using open-ended questions with children, letting mm-hmm. them come up with their own conclusion. The truth is, is that it is in them. They know what's best for them in many ways, but they need adults to guide them in that direction. We don't have to wag our finger and say, it's only this. Many times by just having a relationship and a conversation with these children, they know what's best. We guide them. And then, you know, obviously she was thinking the best thing is, is for you to teach me how to do it better. I guided right. her towards what was actually better. And she acknowledged that that was true. And they were coming up with amazing ideas of how to abstain. A little girl pulled away from the group, came to the front of the class to talk to me. She said, ma'am, I can't do what they're doing. And I said, why not? She said, I can't do it because I'm already sexually active and everyone expects me to do it. So now I can't say no. I said, that's not true. I said, sweetheart, you don't have to have sex. You have every right to say no. And no one has the right to tell you that you have to be sexually active. I said, honey, if you decide to never have sex in your entire life, you don't have to. And she started laughing. I said, of course, you can also wait until marriage. And she said, and she she didn't even say anything. She just smiled brightly at me and went back and joined the conversation with those kids because she had decided that she wanted to abstain and she wanted to do what those kids were talking about as well. Mm. So at the time, of course, I'm still a comprehensive sex educator. So I thought, wow, I've really lost control of the room. What did I just do? (laughs) Um, But in a good way, in a good way. And it was good. And I continued to do that when I spoke to children and I knew what I was doing went against my training. I knew Mm. that, but I knew that the children deserved that information. Um, I've just written a note here because I'm seeing that the discrepancy that's taking place and it's, it's the difference between giving a voice to the voiceless and what it sounds like Planned Parenthood was trying to do, which is empowerment. And the empowerment is an empowerment towards something that we would say is, is wrong, is wicked, especially with people who are underage. Uh, but what they think empowerment means freedom. It's really looks and sounds even from these kids definitions sounds more like slavery. And so nobody's giving them a voice until someone like yourself showed up and actually allowed them to have the thought process outside of a, some sort of sexual bondage or sexual slavery. That's right. That's right. And you're right to use the words that they've been using. They use empowerment. They use freedom. They're using sexual rights. They say all of these, they're basically taking words and redefining them. 
in many ways. It's, it's twisting of the truth. Uh, and the truth is, is that comprehensive sex education advocates, because it's not just Planned Parenthood, they are the largest provider of this type of education and for abortion as well, all over the world. But there are many more organizations that are offshoots of Planned Parenthood who are doing this work as well. And they all are using this kind of language and they have a very distorted view of sex and a very distorted view of children. They literally believe that children want this. Um, One of the most significant aha moments I had with Planned Parenthood was the year that I actually finally quit. And uh, I was actually teaching Planned Parenthood, training them on human trafficking. It was a new key concept in our grant, the Title X grant. It was in Corpus Christi, Texas. And I, I knew that they had a history of not reporting statutory rape. And uh, they had a history of supporting, you know, back then they called them pimps, uh, pimps and their girls. They were very proud that they did that because they felt, well, at least these women now, you know, are being treated for diseases. And, uh, and so they have this very twisted view of their, um, of how they're impacting the community. So I knew that they wouldn't report. And so I thought, well, great. Now it's 2009 and the federal government has now stated that statutory rape is also now considered a federal offense. It's human trafficking. Now I'm going to finally convince Planned Parenthood that this is serious. I think I was being very naive that this is serious and that, that, wow, they're going to, they're going to take this seriously now it's human trafficking. So here I am talking about here. This, this is how you identify a victim of human trafficking. Here are the red flags. This is how you counsel her. This is how you take care of her. And they were with their body language, just really dismissing everything I was saying. So then mm-hmm. I thought, okay, you know what? I bet the reason they're dismissing me is because when a person is, is trafficked, they're brainwashed by their trafficker. And many times the victim will actually protect their trafficker because they're so scared. They, you know, they, they, and, exactly. So I thought that's why they don't get it because they don't understand what's happening in this young girl's, you know, mind and her heart. Mm-hmm. So I started explaining that and I, they still continued to just dismiss me. And I finally said, I don't get it. Why are you refusing to, uh, you know, identify victims of human trafficking and reporting them. Why? And an older nurse raised her hand and she said, honey, if she's not with this man this month, she'll be with another one next month. And they all shook their heads in agreement. And then they began to school me on how young girls want to have sex with older men. And that it was their right and it's what they wanted and that maybe it was healthy for them. And I was in shock, in shock. As soon as I got back to Austin, I told my supervisor what happened because we needed to report this. And she looked me straight in the eye and she said, your job is to train them. And that's it. And that's when I knew I needed to leave. I did not belong there. Uh, And that's also when I began to speak to the pro-life community about sex education and how sex education truly is the marketing tool and the vehicle for abortion. Because when sex educators are able to help children dehumanize themselves and each other through the act of sex, taking intimacy out of it, taking God's design out of it, and making it just about pleasure, dehumanizing one another, then it's just a natural next step to dehumanize the preborn child. 
I mean, that's what happened to me. I lived a very liberal lifestyle. And not only did I teach comprehensive sex education, I was living it out in my life. And now all of a sudden, it was really easy for me to consider aborting my own child. So a sex education is so important for the pro-life movement to be looking at as well, because it is what's driving basically for Planned Parenthood, a whole clientele of people to be using their services their whole lives from contraception and testing to abortion and abortion being the one service that they make the most money on. We've diverted from uh, your testimony. Um, so I wonder if we could kind of get back onto that track and and sort of, so you, you know, here you are, you've decided to have your child, you've had your son, you felt this emptiness in your life. Uh, and so you're, you're uh, reaching out and, and trying different things to kind of fill that gap. And so w- w- keep us going on that track, uh, that line of thinking you were going down. Right. So I, um, like I said, I started doing all these alternative new age type things to relieve my stress. And a big reason that I even knew about these new age approaches was because of where I was working. I was working at a, it was called HIV wellness center and we provided holistic and alternative services to people living with HIV. So we had all these Reiki healers, massage therapists, yoga instructors, breathing exercises, all kinds of things for people living with HIV to help them manage living with this virus. And so I began to use those services myself. Um, One day in particular, I was invited to go to an art of living retreat. And the art of living is, I guess, founded in India and was begun by some a, a guru, to be honest, I don't remember his name. And he has uh, this art of living all over the world. And we had one in Austin, Texas, and they had a retreat in Houston. And I was invited to go and we were going to breathe, I suppose, and meditate. And they had us do this particular exercise in the conference center. And they asked us all to lay down on the ground. And the instructions from this guru was that we were to shake our bodies and just make sounds, not words, but just sounds. And as I laid there, I wasn't comfortable with the activity. It sounded terrible to me, um, demonic even. And it crossed my mind all of a sudden that this is what hell would sound like. Now, I'm not saying that that's what it would really be like, but there was just, I think what it was, was that it was demonic. There was something dark about it. And so I refused to do it. I just decided to lay there silently. But the more I heard these noises, the more uncomfortable I became. And I actually went back to thinking about what my parents taught me, that God existed that there was a God. I still didn't understand who Jesus was, but I knew that I wanted God and not this. I didn't completely understand what I really wanted, but I knew I wanted him instead of what I was experiencing there. And so the next thing I know to bring some comfort to myself, I started to say, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. And I even thought that was a little strange for me to say. But I said it anyway, and it made me feel better. And so I continued to repeat it. Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. And this guru who was walking around the conference room began to notice that I wasn't doing what he asked me to do. And he came closer 
and he repeated his instructions not to use words and that I was to shake my body and to just make moaning and groaning sounds. And I couldn't do it. And so I continued to repeat Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. He stood above me and he looked right into my eyes and he said, don't speak. And I looked at him and I really was not trying to be rebellious, but I said, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. Now, Jonathan, I'd like to say that this was a profound moment in my life. (laughs) It really wasn't. Um, I meant what I said. I didn't fully understand what that meant, but I knew that I wanted God and not what was happening in that room. But I also didn't understand who God was. And so I had this amazing sense of peace. So we were released from this room. We were told to go eat all the holistic food that they had (laughs) available to us. We're out in some forest somewhere. And I remember thinking, man, I feel really peaceful. This is a great event. I went to several events like this, a Reiki master, a Reiki initiation, um, all kinds of different activities. And each time... God would intervene each time I would hear this still small voice that now I realize what was happening, but just protecting me every step of the way. Mm -hmm. And I came to that realization one weekend, it was like a flash of events that in my entire life that, you know, not only did I teach comprehensive sex education, I was living it. I began to realize that God intervened in saving my son's life, uh, giving me a beautiful son. Um, he was intervening every time I was trying to uh, do this new age um, activity. He was there protecting me and calling me. And the realization of that, the realization of how much he loved me despite my disobedience, despite mm-hmm. my ignorance, that he wanted me, he wanted to save me, he loved me, he wanted to protect me. I literally was just on my knees crying, crying, knowing that God was in my life and I continued to ignore him, but he saved me anyway. Mm -hmm. And I knew I needed to get to church. Uh, I didn't know of any churches. I didn't even know what kind of church to go to. But there was a bumper sticker of a church that I saw on just about every car in my neighborhood. And that was the only church I knew of. And I went to that church and I, I responded to the altar call. I went, I took my son with me and I accepted Christ. And, and I, I, I still, I know that because I was so, um, I didn't understand God or his word, but I understood what I was doing. I understood that I was submitting my life to him and that I didn't want my previous life anymore. And I wanted a new life in him. And from that day forward, I just was in the Bible. I was in every Bible study I could get into, all the women's Bible studies. I was reading books written by Christian women. Um, Mm -hmm. It was just so important to me. And the closer I became to God, the further away my son's father was going away from us. Um, Things were getting worse. And the worse that they got, the more I got into the Bible. Um, I don't know from the outside what he thought But as he was doing things he wasn't supposed to be doing, I was sitting on my bed reading God's word. Mm -hmm. And by the time he left, I had been a Christian for at least a year. It was devastating when he left us. Mm -hmm. But after a while, I realized that nothing had changed, that my son and I were by ourselves all the time anyway. 
We were at the park by ourselves. We were buying groceries by ourselves. I was taking care of him by myself. Nothing had changed. And if anything, there was a burden that was lifted from me. And, you know, and and of course I was mourning. I was by myself. Um, I felt horrible about myself. I felt like I wasn't valuable enough to be married to. Um, I was abandoned. But Isaiah 54 was a chapter in Isaiah that helped me through my whole single motherhood. Mm-hmm. And in Isaiah 54, he says that, you know, he, he calls himself my husband. Mm-hmm. And that's what I clung on to that entire chapter. I clung on to that, you know, and he would say that no weapon forged against me will prevail and no tongue, you know, I would refute every tongue that accuses me, that he would build me up, um, that he would be there with me. And I just held on to that. And I shared that chapter with so many other single moms over the years. And they also feel that that chapter, Isaiah 54, has helped them a lot. My life was completely transformed and it changed the way I saw my work. Um, God was literally taking the scales off my eyes and helping me realize that the vulnerable populations I was working with, that the programs we were implementing we're slowly killing a vulnerable population. And what this population needed was Christ. I wonder if we could talk about, you've used this phrase repeatedly, meeting people where they are. And that's a phrase that is used by the groups you were associated with. But it's also a phrase that you use in your relationship with Christ. And I wonder if you could help us differentiate between the verbiage. You and I have already had a conversation about the power of language and and words. I wonder if you could show us the the differentiation that you see between those two mindsets. Right. So what I came to realize after leaving that kind of work um, is that, yes, we have different populations of people talking about meeting people where they're at. And it, it sounds great. You know, we meet them where they're at. Planned Parenthood, though, and comprehensive sex education and this whole movement of sexual freedom, they say we have to meet them where they're at. What I've come to realize is that they meet them where they're at and they leave them there. Um, They leave them in high-risk behavior. They leave them in intravenous drug use. They leave them in high-risk sexual activity. They leave them there and they just supposedly teach them how to reduce their risk, but they're not trying to lead them into a better life. What Jesus did for me, he met me where I was at. I was exactly like the population that I was serving. I was doing the exact same things. But when Jesus came to me, he met me where I was at. He met me in every act that I was involved in, whether it was the new age things or in teaching this kind of education, whatever it was, he was right there with me. But what was different is he met me where I was at. And then he led me into an abundant life. He didn't leave me there. He convicted me. And it took years. He was very gentle with me. I just remember thinking year after year, he would show me another piece of my life that I needed to repent of. And it Mm -hmm. wasn't because God was wagging a finger at me. It's because he wanted me to be improved. He wanted me to be healed. He wanted me to be completely converted. And he couldn't do that all at once because it would probably kill me. (laughs) It would have been way too much. 
to make me realize one thing after another of the things that I did when I didn't know him would mm. have been devastated. So he needed to do that gently over several years. Uh, and even today, obviously. Yeah. And it's just amazing how he does that. And so that that's a big part of what I share with people is that, you know, the culture tells us meet people where they're at, meet people where they're at. And we're like, okay. Yeah. But the big yeah. difference as Christians is when we meet people where they're at, we don't leave them there. We yeah. want to share the gospel. We want to have them have the same abundant life that we have. And so sharing grace and truth uh, right. is so important. Um, the culture tells you that you're not supposed to do that. Planned Parenthood tells you that you're judging if you do that. But the truth is that is what I needed. I needed that. I needed yeah. truth and I needed that truth to be shared with me through grace. Um, and so that's a big part of what I do today is that I can meet people where they're at, but I'm not going to leave you there. This is where we will end the first part of our conversation with Monica. Next week, we will pick up where we left off and Monica will share how parents are the key to loving and wise sex education and not the barrier. In fact, she has started an organization to empower parents in this area. You won't want to miss it. Also, will you do me a favor? Will you take a minute and share today's episode on your social media channels and be sure to tag us? Candid is a podcast from Leading the Way with Dr. Michael Youssef. Don't forget to connect with our social media pages on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And subscribe to Candid Conversations on your favorite podcast platform so that you never miss an episode. While there, please leave a review. It helps people to find us. As always, thank you for listening to and sharing this episode.